Amen. <laughs> Morning. That's good stuff. Let's thank uh, Jeff and Lindsay for the food. Music is really, um, it's interesting because it means something to us, but, and, and we kind of know how music works, but we don't really know how it means anything, and I just always think that's interesting, and sometimes I think, it, it, again, this could just be me in isolation, but um, sometimes I think we're doing, we're listening uh, to the words and the music, and God smiles as we sort of stumble upon the reason for music, you know, like, that's it. I mean, it's a created thing, but we just sort of discover it, and it's, uh, it means something, but uh, it's cool. So that's one of the reasons we sing. You know, obviously, it's an odd thing. We don't sing in any part of the week, uh, except maybe in the car, you know, and you're off key. But, uh, but anyway, that's, that's not even in the sermon. I just was in that moment. Um, how you doing? Really? The 11 o'clock tribe has awoken. So uh, are you ready? We have some sermon business to take care of. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. If you were here last week, we started a series through this verse. Uh, We're taking five weeks just to go through this verse. Uh, As you can see on the screen, the only reason we can do this is because there are five unique uh, challenges for us in this. You can see it right there at the tail end. Be an example uh, in our speech, in life, in love and faith and impurity. We talked about speech last week. Did anyone take me up on the five-week challenge to watch your speech? Anybody? Just two? Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> how's that going, by the way? Is it horribly frustrating? You just want to yell at somebody? I told you you could yell at me. You could email me. And I actually got a couple of texts and emails from people. And literally it began with, I'm, just, I'm going to yell at you because you said I could yell at you. And it was really fun to read all the profanity and uh, all the different things that that you people normally say, uh, but no. So we talked about speech last week. Today the word is life. We'll unpack that in just a moment. Uh, But for those of you who are new and uh, for those of you who are wondering, uh, let me give you some backstory to to, uh, this letter, 1 Timothy. It's very important because understanding where the letter came from and how, you know, what's in it, what's behind it, what's coming through it and out of it, both to Timothy and to us 2,000 years later is very, very important. Um, Obviously, Timothy is the recipient of the letter. Most letters, if they uh, have a name or a city title uh, in the Bible, it's, they're usually the recipients. Sometimes they're the writer. But in this case, Paul wrote a couple of letters to Timothy. Now, Timothy was this kid, compared to Paul, this kid, who Paul picked up on one of his missionary journeys and was his mentor, his coach. And so Timothy is someone who Paul uh, had invested in, both spiritually uh, also as a leader. He's just kind of this life coach guy, but he's also pushing Timothy into leadership roles and uh, opportunities to sort of expand his, his faith and practice and so forth. Well, Paul plants this church in this city uh, called Ephesus. Um, and at the time, Ephesus was big, I think the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. A quick pass through the history of Ephesus in those days, you'll find uh, the Temple of Artemis was there. The Romans called her Diana. Uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient worlds. Major city, major cosmopolitan area, major hipsterville. I mean, this was like the place to be. And Paul put a church in Ephesus and then left, but he left Timothy to take care of it. Now, if you look back into, by the way, I bought a new Bible. What do you guys think? It's uh, shiny. Uh, I was nervous about test driving it on stage because you know how you know where stuff is in your Bible? I have no idea where stuff is in this Bible. 
Um, <laughs> the big number for the chapter isn't in the right place, so everything is messed up. But if you go back to, <laughs> next up is a haircut. It's coming. Uh, yeah. Speech. Watch your speech. Uh, <laughs> even the words in your head. You got to watch. All right. Check out verse 3 in chapter 1. I mean, this is a real, this, even if you didn't know what was going on, you can kind of get a, a glimpse here of what's happening uh, with Timothy in this church that Paul left him uh, to lead and to take care of. Verse 3, the first two verses are just typical Greek intro to a letter. And then Paul says, my version, is, my version says, I urge you, as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia, to remain in Ephesus. Yours may say, as when I, when I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay behind. And this word for urge, the Greek word there is the word perikaleo. And it sometimes is translated encourage, which sounds real soft and Mickey Mouse. But the word urge is like, I'm pushing you. I'm making you do something that perhaps you don't want to do. And sometimes when we use the word encourage from the Bible, we're unaware that the root of that word is very painful. I'm encouraging you to hang in there. Oh, please encourage me. You don't want that. Not in a biblical sense. That means I'm going to push you back in the game. And so we get the feeling from the very beginning, look, I urged you when I left, or when I left, I urged you to stay there. You kind of get the feeling that Timothy didn't want to stay here. Like, Paul, you're leaving, I'm leaving with you. No, you need to stay. I don't want to stay. These aren't my people. You're my people. I want to go with you. And so Paul had to leave, or had to leave Timothy with this encouragement, look, you need to stay. And if you read the rest of the verses, because all sorts of things were messed up in the church, primarily in its teaching and its faith. And Paul said, I want you to stay there and fix it. Straighten it out. And so this letter becomes this coaching letter for a kid who's in over his head. Has anyone ever felt like you're in over your head? Raise your hand. Okay. Anybody feel like that now? Whether it's with work, okay, finances, relationships. Okay, we don't even have to like, okay, you know. I don't have to do the cheesy pastor application piece there. You know you're in over your head, right? In whatever the, the, the situation may be. And so Paul begins to give advice to Timothy on how to deal not only with his situation, but also uh, watching his character, watching his life, making sure that he's staying intact in his faith in the midst of a stressful time. And this is where we get verse 12. It's on the screen. It says, Let no one look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, and faith, and in purity. And last week we talked about our words. And today we move from speech and words to this word life. Now, the word life, next slide, uh, that Paul uses the word anastrophe. Say the word anastrophe. If you look this up, it means something totally different in uh, your dictionary, but in the ancient sense, it meant conduct. Behavior is a good word for this. Manner of life. Some, some translations say manner of life. Uh, the word life, that's the NIV translation, which tends to let you down. It's just too broad. And so it's nice to know what he's talking about. He's talking about deeds, behavior, conduct. And so we move from speech to action. We move from word to deed. Are you with me? Some versions actually connect, the two, connect those two saying speech and conduct and then comma, love, faith, and purity. So they're, they're, they're together. And if we step back from it and just give it a quick pass, we hear Paul saying, 
Uh, listen, it's not just what you say, it's what you do. And more importantly, it's how you live. That's where the word life is good. It's how you live. It's your manner of living in and among the people that you're with. And again, Paul is stressing the importance of congruency between what I say, particularly for Timothy, what I say I believe, and then what I do with my life. And the other thing that Paul is getting at here, and of course, we get this in the scriptures a lot, that life isn't really the sum of what you say, but it's the sum of what you do connection to what you say. Integrity, character. When you hear this phrase, oh, that guy, he walks the talk. Is that a put down or a compliment? It's a compliment. That's an, that's an admirable trait. Oh, that person is for real. The real deal. They do what they say and they say what they do. And that's a nice way of seeing this piece right here. It's not just what you say, but make sure you're an example as well in your life. And again, the word example there, which is painted on the screen behind me in Greek, is the word tupas. That's the heartbeat of the verse. Like he lists all these five things, these five areas of life, but right in the middle of it, the thing that it spins around is it's all about being an example, particularly for Timothy, when you're in the midst of stress, and you can sort of pick that up. I mean, the first part of the verse, let no one look down on you because you were young. That doesn't sound like a happy situation. Being looked down on is never a good thing. And so Paul is giving Timothy and us, hey, look, when you're in these situations where there's pressure, where things are uh, stressful, don't use those, don't find yourself in those situations reacting, but uh, in a negative way, but react in a positive way and become an example. An example of what? An example of the grace and the mercy of God and so forth to everyone around you. About being um, a template a target for people. Like, in the midst of stress, I'm an example. And if you look at those five things, we said this last week, but just as a repeat for those who weren't here, these five things, speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, those are all five things that under stress and under pressurized situations can weaken. And as I admitted last week, the, the way that everyone else around me, around me knows that I'm stressed, the first sign is my words. I start saying things that I normally don't say. And maybe you can relate to that. And so we get to this piece about life. And in stressful times when I'm tempted to walk away from my faith or my confessions and slip into some destructive behavior. And I guess the question that everybody has to wrestle with today is, um, and if you're in a small group, I think this is one of the questions on the sheet, is... um, How do stressful times impact your behavior? Let me just take that a a, a level deeper. Where is a common place you end up physically when you're stressed? What do you end up finding yourself doing again and again and again? Or, again, another layer in, are there extremes that you go to in your conduct when you feel really stressed? Maybe back to an old addiction or maybe back to this person, or maybe back to this drink, or maybe back to this place. Where, where do you find yourself going to the extremes when you're under stress? That's a good question to keep in mind. Because the thing about stress and the thing about tough times is that it's very tempting. It always tests our character, doesn't it? You really know who a person is when they sort of, you know, the example they set 
in the midst of uh, real difficult situations. And so all of us find ourselves in those, those times where we're, our character is tested and we're tempted to just... And the reason we go to like behavior A, B, or C, or D is because that, at least in the moment, because when I'm stressed, when I'm between you know, knowing the outcome and whatever, when I'm between that and I'm feeling very conflicted and tense, I reach for something that uh, soothes that immediately. Because we are not okay with just sitting in it. Amen? We're not okay with just being in a stressful, tense situation. Anybody remember these? Yeah. Are you with me? This one, by the way, is brand new. I thought they didn't make these after 1979. But, and clearly I don't think they do because I was looking at it. uh, This is my son's. This does, not, this does not look like a new cartoon to me. So I think they're reprinting and, and selling them. Um, so when you see this, what do you think of? Just yell it out. Dentist office. Who said dentist office? Everybody, right? For those of you who don't go to the dentist, these are Highlights magazines. Um, <laughs> you can find one underneath a seven-year-old copy of Time. Uh, up until about, I would say up until about eight years ago, I hated going to the dentist. Anybody with me on that? No? You people are just perfect. Forget it. Never had a cavity. Uh, now, I had some like trauma in a dentist office back when I was a kid. It was like this. I, I mean, I'm being serious. Uh, and I just always hated going. But I went, but I always hated going. And so up until about eight years ago, when I went, even as an adult, y'all, I would sit there just, what are they going to do? It's just a cleaning, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to end up on the floor in tears. But, <laughs> but you know, as a 30-year-old, 30-something-year-old something, I still grab the Highlights magazine when I go to the dentist's office, you know? But as a kid, what this was, was, you know, I'm watching the clock. My appointment's at 1 o'clock. It's 12.55. And I'm just worried about everything. And I look around and I grab the Highlights magazine because it just keeps me busy. I don't have to think about the dentist appointment. Are you with me? Here's an article about Knoxville, Tennessee, by the way. Because it just takes your mind off it. You know? Now, I did this illustration first hour. I put the thing down and went, I'm not doing that second hour. And then two people came up to me after the first hour and said, please do the highlights thing. It was funny. So this is just for those two people. But, uh, but I think you get the gist of what I'm saying. When we are worried, when we're stressed, when we're in a situation where uh, we don't want to be in it, we just reach for something that will take the pain away for a little bit, like a highlights magazine or whatever. And so Paul is calling us to question what is, it that, what is it that takes us there that pushes us to pick up something or go back to something or someone that will get us through whatever it is that we're going through? And those are times when our character sometimes is uh, at risk of being weakened. And I think that the question that we've all said or we've all asked out loud or in our head or to our best friends, says it best when we say to them or to ourselves, what was I thinking? 
Have you ever said that? What was I thinking going back to her? What was I thinking going back to that place? What was I thinking doing this or that? What was I thinking? Because in the moment, you're not thinking. It makes perfect logical sense that I'm back into this behavior. And nine out of ten times you trace it back, it's like, man, it's just been a hard, it's been a hard road. So I just got to go do X, Y, or Z. Compromise. And then down the road we say, what was I thinking? What have I gotten myself into? What's been going on in me that causes me to do that? And so Paul is saying to Timothy, go the opposite route. In the middle of really difficult situations, and this is ultimately about Timothy's public career, you set the example in your conduct, in your life, in your way of living. Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the what? The meek. We think the meek means like a little defenseless sheep in front of a tractor. Like the weak, the pushed over, right? The meek are those who can't defend themselves. Meek are people who have relinquished all their rights to retaliate. They don't fight back. They don't stand a chance because they don't stand. And then Jesus stands up in front of people and says, ah, but they're blessed. And then he says, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they get the world. It's given to them. It's been promised to them. Now, the word for meek is the word praeus. Next slide. Gentleness. You probably thought it meant that, but that's good. It does mean that. But this is a, let me just ascend this thing from gentleness up, although it goes down on the screen, but you know what I'm saying. Gentleness, although at first sounds like um, someone who doesn't have a backbone. But gentleness, in terms of meekness, is a very, very disciplined trait. Because to be gentle in each and every situation requires great restraint, doesn't it? Some people call meekness power under control. Great definition. Great definition. You put the keys in the car, you're driving, it's power under control. You could do some great damage with your car. Could you not? But you are practicing meekness when you safely travel. When you have um, a child and you're angry with your child and they live to see the next day. (laughs) Meekness. Because you could take them out just like that. (laughs) Sorry, sometimes it's always on stage therapy for me. Uh, Are you with me, though? Gentleness is not a weak trait. It's a very admirable, disciplined trait. Self-controlled. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control is the anchor to all those things. Those don't happen without some sense of self-control. Between the extremes, going outside of the Scripture's Uh, because sometimes the scriptures don't really define it for you. Um, I don't have this on the screen, but here's a a description from Aristotle, from his Magnum Aurelia. He says, Praise is not for him who is deficient in anger. So I'm not 
He's like, I'm not happy about anybody who's never angry, nor to him who is there in excessive. So this guy over here never gets angry, no praise for him. And this guy who lives in anger, no praise for him. But for the ones whose state is between the two, this man is, and here's the word, gentle. And his gentleness will be a balanced state between two affections. So when Jesus talks about meekness, it's about being in the, in the middle of two extremes. Let me illustrate this for you with a couple of uh, everyday examples. Let's talk about money. There's on one end, there's I don't spend anything and I don't give anything away. And then on the other end, there's materialism. Are you tracking? In the middle is generosity. Both extremes are selfish. This person never gives anything away, and this person buys everything because it's all about them. But the person in the middle is not drawn to the extremes. They're drawn to the middle, which is generosity. Are you with me? Anger. We'll come back to anger. The two extremes are, I'm a pushover. I never get angry. I just let everybody do what they want to do. And over here, I am very angry all the time, and I'm good at it. But in the middle, we have this person who understands the difference between divine anger, being angry about the right things, and then also about um, not getting angry. I mean, Jesus got angry. Jesus threw some tables over in a temple. It's a great story. But in Ephesians 4, it says, in your anger, do not sin. So therefore, anger is not the sin, but it's what you do with your anger. Lots of great things in the world have happened out of anger. Great movements have been started out of anger over the situation or the way things are. So it's not about the anger over things. It's from the anger do you sin. Meek, the meek person, sits in the middle between the two extremes. Does that make sense? And so the meek is someone who is actually very, very strong. But I love what Jesus says. Uh, We've missed that slide. Back in uh, Matthew 5, blessed are the meek, for they will what? Inherit. It's a very interesting use of wording. Inheritance. And inheritance is something you have coming to you because it's been promised to you, right? You're the son of a father who has a thing that you're going to get at some point. Or you're the daughter of a mother who has this thing that you're going to get at some point. And so to inherit something is to wait for it, right? You'll wait for it. You don't take it. It's coming to you. Be patient. You'll get it. So Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit. Meekness in times of stress is about withholding reaction towards the extremes. Therefore, you are waiting. Now, in this teaching of Jesus, this is about waiting for, obviously, God's deliverance, both personally and for the whole world. And so to inherit that is to wait for it. God's timing, not yours. So being a meek person is to recognize that, A, you're not God, B, you're waiting on him, but also in a practical sense, you're not running to the extremes for you you know how to wait. Now, the context in which Jesus told this or gave this teaching in the first century, he says, blessed are the meek, for you will inherit the earth. When he said this, Rome had the earth, and they did not inherit it. They took it by force. And they certainly, that's the way every empire 
rises. No empire has ever stood back and said, wow, look what we inherited. Look what just fell into our hands. They took it. And so the meek are those who know what has been promised to them, and so they wait. Back to 1 Timothy. What does all this mean? That's a long way around to say Paul is instructing Timothy and us when we find ourselves in places that we're tempted to go to the extremes in our behavior to don't do that and set the example for the people around us that this is how we handle stress. This is how we handle rough times. This is how Christ-following people do it when things get tough. That's the idea. Don't do what everybody else does. Do the, be the example. Do the opposite. Swim upstream and so forth. It's different. Be different in how you handle it. And then there's the so what question like, well, why is this even important? Why is it important? I mean, who cares? Well, let me just say this and then tell you a story. To be the example for those around us, particularly in our conduct, it is a testimony to what we believe. You are a walking business card for your faith, which is a very, I mean, it's like, it's a very humbling and frustrating reality. If you call yourself a Christ-following person, then your life has to show that. Or it doesn't really matter what you say. And it doesn't matter what I say. We live in this uh, building just up the street here, and the way it works is there's a courtyard between two buildings that face each other. So if you've been to my place, you know it. Everybody says it looks like Melrose Place, but whatever. Uh, It kind of is Melrose Place, now that I think about it. Um, It's a great place, 90-something units. Most of us know each other. We have the entire SEC represented in every, you know, so there you go. All the flags are hanging. The Bulldogs are out. The Mississippi people are out, you know. We don't have any tech people, though, I don't think. Uh, That's in the HOA. They're not allowed to move in. So it's very loud around football season, which is now. My son, uh, his window looks out into the courtyard. There are many nights he walks into a room at 10 or 11 and says, I can't sleep, you know, because of whoever. Um, So I have to go out and be the old guy in the unit and be like, just take it down a little bit. Uh, In my pajamas and socks. Uh, (laughs) um, Well, just across from us, this way and up on the balcony. Everybody's got a balcony out front overlooking the courtyard. And there's a, there's, a, there's a tribe that lives up there. I don't know who's who. But they all live there. And it's kind of a clown car. They just come and go and it's wow. But they are very, very nice. And they are very, very social. And they always have a dinner party every single night on the front porch until late into the evening. I don't know what they do for a living. Uh, and in fact, their porch is just set up. I mean, they have coolers constantly. I'm talking about the ones you take to the lake, like the big ones. They just, they double as seats and, you know, the bar. So I went out late one night uh, to walk the dog. And it was, you know, 10, 10.30 or 11 o'clock. And I was a Saturday. It was about three weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. Walked out. And of course, you can hear all the conversation. And I'm standing out there with the dog, waiting for it to go to the restroom. 
and they're talking, and they have a big dinner party up there, and one girl says, um, well, and I'm quoting, she says, well, I guess I'm just going to get trashed, and then I'll just go to church in the morning and be all grumpy. So I did a quick look to make sure she wasn't on our praise team for the next morning. Uh, (laughs) You know, just... CCB is a broken people. I mean, we know. You know, it's like they could be leading prayer tomorrow. I don't know. So just kind of gave it the look. And, you know, so I guess I'll just get trashed and just go to the church in the morning and be grumpy, whatever. But it isn't what she said. It's what her friend said after that. And he responded saying, well, you wouldn't be a Christian if you didn't. I mean, even my dog looked up. What is that? Now, I'm not saying that happens in every situation. But his statement back to her is a nice narrative about maybe perhaps how people see us. They talk a big game about this and that, but I don't see it. It's a convicting moment. And I don't want you to feel beat up. Don't. But I do want you to process that in a very mature way and think to yourself, am I any different than that? Like, maybe that's not your problem every so often, or maybe that's not your behavior, but what else is it that someone would look at and say, well, that's no different than me? That's a pretty powerful sort of thing to think through. Uh, Let me close with something from Romans 12, verse 1. (laughs) Once again, I can't find my way through my own Bible. Paul says in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of what? Worship. So worship that we often associate with music, which is a part of it, worship in its entirety is actually not a song that we sing, but it happens to be a life that we live. Are you with me? Uh, St. Francis is said to have said, preach the gospel or the good news at all times, and if necessary, use words. And I like that because it's true. My behavior always validates or invalidates everything I say about my faith. And spirituality and worship isn't found in something that I say entirely, but in what I do and how I live. And then Paul ends this little section with his friend Timothy in verse 16. After he goes through, set the example in your life, he says, pay close attention to yourself 
and your teaching. In other words, watch your life next to your words. Pay close attention to that so that you will not just be the example to those around you, but that you will show them what God can do in the life of a person. There's no conclusion to this other than I think it's some great stuff to think through. I was telling someone after first hour that I love these series and they're really frustrating too because they aren't, these aren't clear cut, here's your answers, go and do. These are just lifelong, you got to always watch this stuff. And the question for our church, this, you know, this church, this family in this building is what happens if we as a church take take Paul up on that, take God up on that, and really begin to pay close attention to our life. So when you leave here and you go to work tomorrow, what does that look like? What does that look like for you? What does that look like in your family? What does that look like in your neighborhood? Like, if we really took that seriously, what happens to our city? Or at least the building or the neighborhood that you live in? Or the place that you work or the company that you run? What happens to that? Well, you won't know until you try. But God is calling each of us to not just set the example in our speech, but also in our life. And we'll stop there. We move into the word love next week, which is a big challenge. And, uh, but we'll stop there. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing one more song together, and, um, and then we'll be done for the morning. So let's stand together and pray. God, thank you for um, this uh, worship gathering today, just being together with church family and um, singing songs about you and to you. And, um, but God, as you have taught us in your word today, that it's not just what we say, but it's what we do. And so we, we ask for strength and grace um, to live a congruent life of integrity and developing a strong character. Help us to be meek people that over the next few months and years that you begin to develop within us a meekness, that we grow less and less attracted to the extremes and more to the middle where you are, where your strength is found. As you said in Psalm 46, that we are to be still and know that you are God, that we just wait it out. And it's in those moments that we learn more about you and about ourselves and God, keep us from evil as Jesus taught us to pray. Keep us from temptation. Keep us from those things that are just pulling us to the extremes. God, keep us bound together as a community of faith, this church, that this is not something we do in solo. The more we look at your word in the scriptures, this just can't be done alone. And help us to put roots down here and help us to connect so that we may be encouraged. And Father, as we sing this closing song, um, help us to resonate with your will, which is that we stand firm in you in all situations. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen.